0: Welcome back to Trailblazers. Yes, we are back after, well, a little bit of a hiatus when I went away gallivanting around the world. But I'm Ricky Swanella. It's a real pleasure to be back speaking to New Zealand's leading sportswomen, our sports coaches, and our sports administrators. And what better person to have a week out from Rugby World Cup 2021? Which is obviously being played in 2022. Michelle Hooper, CEO of the tournament. Welcome into Trailblazers.
1: How are you, <laughs> Ricky? So wonderful to be here with you. And just, I'm the tournament director, not CEO. Oh, so just
0: to be clear, right? <laughs> oh, well, I've just oh, see, I've, I I like giving people promotions on the show. Perfect. It's like big up, big up. you yeah, But when I say how are you, I can only imagine what life is like for you at the moment.
1: <laughs> to be honest, I'm actually in my sweet spot because it's when the rubber hits the road and events that I really get alive. You know, in a, a life. And this is like the um the, my, the moment I've been living for for a long time, and I'm not sure if you read the um the news today, but we've hit thirty thousand sales at Eden Park, and we've got eight days to go to the opening match of Rugby World Cup 2021. Um, now playing in 2022, so it's a little bit euphoric too because that was something we dreamed about, and now we're there in terms of our numbers, and and you know now all we've got between us and you know a sellout of Eden Park is eight days to go, so. Uh, you know this is it has been an incredible roller coaster, and there's been so many curveballs along the way but as I um, say more often than not we're, I'm always grateful I'm so grateful about the situation we're in COVID restrictions are off and um, there's no reason why we can't fill that stadium for the first time ever for women's sport and women's rugby which is just an outstanding outcome
0: because that was always the big target wasn't it day one fill Eden Park that was kind of the one you, you've hung your hat on pretty much
1: <laughs> since you've got this job well when I first got the job back in February 2020 you can't you know we were looking at um, Watakuri Stadium as the opening match venue 5,000 capacity Uh, you know so I started in February and a month later COVID struck and uh, the very first thing um, we took on to do was move the opening match day to Eden Park because we were saying if we're here to supercharge women's rugby we can't do it in a stadium with 5,000 it has to be our national stadium it has to be Eden Park so that happened in about June July we managed to um, get all the parties aligned and, and make that move to Eden Park and then, since we did that, you know, it was taking that that revenue target and that attendance target from five thousand to well, what do we need to do to cover costs of hosting in that venue, which is really still around that conservative twenty thousand mm-hmm. figure. And then we're like, well, if we're going to do that, we're going to go for a world record. So because the current world record for women's rugby is twenty thousand uh, at a women's rugby um, rugby world cup, and uh, then we were like, okay, well, let's go for that. Then that can be our target to beat the world record for a rugby world cup. And then now we've managed to, uh, you know, well and truly go past that on. Paper. And so we're like, well, what's the next big thing? And, you know, we're always really ambitious in what we do. And we're like, well, there's no reason why for the, we can't sell at Eden Park for the first time ever for women's sport here in Aotearoa. So that's become the new goal.
0: <laughs> <laughs> like, So most people would be in a kind of ball of stress or anxiety or whatever. What I know of you, you are the most energetic, enthusiastic person I think I've come across in this industry, and that is saying a lot because there are some pretty epic women doing stuff like that. How do you you. keep the stresses and the anxiety away um, at this time?
1: Well, as I like to tell people, you know, I'm my, um, I, the athletes perform, they go for gold on the field and I go for gold off the field. You know, that's my goal is to make sure we put, create this incredible environment for them to come and be their best and perform their best. And, you know, I know that in my you know, performance zone, it's about keeping calm mm. and being the best leader I can be. So, you know, my job is to be incredibly proactive, um, make sure my team have what they need in order to deliver what we need to do. And then my job is really about issues resolution. You know, it's come to me with the problems. What can we do about it? How do we solve it? And how do we move forward? And it, quite funny, I've just finished watching the Ted Lasso series, which took oh. me a long time to get around to watching.
0: you <laughs> like, you just finished that? we no. will <laughs> well, be in time for the next husband season. My was telling
1: me, you need to watch it. And all my friends saying, you need to watch it, it's so funny. And I was like, oh, I don't have time, I don't have time. And then I watched it. But the most beautiful thing I took out of that series was goldfish memory. <laughs> it's like, that happened, we dealt with it and we move on and then just forget about it. And I was like, because we quite often hold on to all of these things. Mm-hmm. And I think like, with COVID, you're kind of traumatized by all these experiences and memories that come flooding back and you're like, oh, don't let that happen again. So it's so nice to be able to say just goldfish it move on and so that's kind of my approach with the team now it's like
0: the- yeah that is the best series for that kind of thing too. Like in terms of like little positive vibes all the time.
1: Yeah.
0: Give me a sense of of the team. Uh, who uh, you know? How big of a crew have you had from February twenty twenty when it was all first kind of kicking off to now? Obviously after a year delayed. Yeah, so who? How many people? Who's been working on this behind
1: the scenes? Oh, it's actually, I mean it's a story in itself. I'm not going to take all your time to explain it now. But you know, when the bid was run for hosting the rugby world cup, it was uh, for the women's rugby world cup. It was done off the Footprint of the 2017 Rugby World Cup, which was, uh, just to be fair, it was tiny mm. and it was delivered at a university campus. And, um, you know, their attendance target, well, they had 34,000 people through the whole event. Uh, so the model for this Women's Rugby World Cup was around um, secondments and role shares through New Zealand Rugby. Uh, and so the model was small, you know, it's probably mm-hmm. about 20 staff, but, you know, a lot of role share or um, secondments across the business. And obviously, when COVID hit and that New Zealand Rugby's approach was picking up the capacity within the workforce. So the first thing that happens with COVID is, you know, massive restructure and lots of jobs lost. And uh, it was like, well, how are we going to deliver a Rugby World Cup on top of everything else? So I think that COVID delivered some real gems for us and that we were able to say, we need more resourcing, I need dedicated staff, I need staff in Auckland, and, you know, we need to make sure we're really putting the resources around this to. Ensure it's a success and that we supercharge the women's game. So, the first thing was just growing that base and that team. Um, So, we've been fortunate to tap into a number of different pots. Great support from, um, you know, MB and Sport New Zealand, and everyone's bought into the vision. And I think there's just great energy around women's sport at Mm -hmm. the moment here in our country. And uh, so, and we've benefited really well from that. So, We've gone from quite a small team of around 20, 21 people on different ways of working and now we're up to about, uh, these aren't we're about 55 staff in my team, but yep. probably about 37 of those are kind of core operational staff. The others have kind of been how we mix getting people into our team to make it as big as we can.
0: <laughs> Dare I ask how many hours you're doing at the moment <laughs> and how many you've done in the last week as teams have arrived in?
1: Well, to be honest, I don't sleep. I'm awake so much. I think it's not that I'm not trying to sleep. I'm there. I'm just awake. You know, I think at night it's when you kind of your brain is doing all your processing and what your next moves are in terms of the issues that are on the plate at the end of the day. And uh, I'm not sure if you saw recently, we've come out with this beautiful um, poi program yeah. and, and that use of the poi within the stadiums and, and just really celebrating, um, you know, poi as a, a toang of um, – of maori culture and how we can embrace that at match days but my concern was all of a sudden you know the misuse of them within the venue and I'm, i got really worried about that so my brain was like we need people in hivers walking around like poi patrollers making sure that no one's abusing the poi and they are used respectfully that's not actually an idea at the moment poi, but my, poi patrol, <laughs> but it was all in my head and i was so like I, I, but this, these are the things that keep you awake at night so it's really down to the detail now you know we're close to kickoff all the teams are here now? Yes. 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 So
0: what was that like? Uh, I think, well, Japan were probably the first to arrive, were they? Because they played the Black Ferns, obviously, a couple of weeks, or last week, or whenever it was. Um, yes. So what is that like
1: getting those first teams? And as you said, no restrictions as well. Oh, absolutely incredible. So I think the teams were due to take off on the um, I think Japan maybe already were in the country, uh, but the other teams were due to take off, and the, those changes all happened on the Monday afternoon. So there was a big update to the COVID protocols for the tournament, which have to be in place, because we still don't want teams to contract COVID. We, there's that isolation problem, you still don't want teams out isolating um, and not being able to play. We don't want players to get here and not be able to play to, for people who are still going, oh why are there restrictions or why are they still wearing masks? That, yeah, they've still got to look after themselves, right? Yeah, totally and uh, so the um, the plan was, they all came in a week earlier so all the teams are here this week which is a, like an extra week and the idea was that if they come in, anyone can contract COVID, they've got a week to, you know, r- um, recover isolate and then get back out, train and prepare for the kickoff on the 8th of October uh, so all the teams came in last week Saturday and Sunday, two massive days. So our teams did like twenty-hour shifts around the airport, getting everybody in. And um, there's obviously the fabulous double-header match at Eden Park, Bl- All Blacks, Black Ferns. Um, you know, it was just it was just everything going on last weekend. Um, but that went really, really smoothly. All the teams got into the country. They've all had a um, you know full week now here training in Aotearoa, mm. and, and really good experience. They're really enjoying their facilities and everything's going really well. So. Um, fantastic, And you go through Auckland City and you just see team buses everywhere yeah, branded yeah. to the hilt. You see big groups of players and it's really buzzy in the inner CBD, which is so nice to cool. see. It would be ideal if it would stop raining in Auckland, please. <laughs> well, today is actually the worst rainy day. Yeah. The other days have been shiny. Yeah. The other people that have all arrived
0: to are the world rugby teams that come in and, and support the tournament because and, and it's you know working to their spec. So what is it like, I guess, welcoming um, them in and, and fr- from largely from Ireland but from across Europe and the, and the UK and, and all of that to come in here as well?
1: Well, it's incredible because actually in February 2020, when I started this job, World Rugby had, um, it had, were just in town for a yes, visit. So yeah. it was literally my first week of work was site visits with World Rugby. And so they all came out from Dublin and England and, and we, we spent this you know week together doing all the planning and reporting and, and um, going through all the venues. And the next week they returned home to Ireland and then since then COVID restrictions yeah. have been in place and the world went into lockdown. So pretty much all of them have gone away. You know We've all done our various lockdowns in our different countries and gradually coming out but not necessarily all being back in office and then, you know, next minute they're back here in New Zealand and yeah. we're doing it again. And we're all in one office in the main operations centre at Sky City. And um, it's just really fantastic. You know, we've been doing everything on Zooms forever, you know, and we deal with Dublin and, and New Zealand. So we're on night calls most nights of the week um, planning. And, and so it's so lovely to be in the time zone. Yeah. And it's quite a treat, actually, not to be on night calls every night of the week, you know, <laughs> yeah. which is the normal standard for everybody in our team. And, uh, you know, I think World Rugby are really excited to be here in New Zealand to see what's unfolding for the women's game and also the numbers just creeping up, um, Mm. up and up for the attendance at that opening game.
0: Well, some of them should be very impressed with the list of restaurants I also gave a hand out to (laughs) the staff as well because enjoy the city while they're here. My guest today on Trailblazers is tournament director of Rugby World Cup 2021, Michelle Hooper. A quick break here on SCNZ and back with more in a moment. Welcome back into SENZ, I'm Ricky Swannell, and we are back with a new edition of Trailblazers, and my guest is Michelle Hooper, who is Tournament Director for Rugby World Cup, right on our doorstep now. Uh, sport for you, how, how and where did sport become a part of your life?
1: Wow, awesome question. Gosh, I wouldn't have... Um that I grew up in the Bombay Hills that's where I spent my mm-hmm. childhood and um, we played every sport under the sun to be honest we lived on the top of the Bombay Hill uh, we had the tennis club down the road um, we had the um, po- I was actually a big pony club girl I love pony club I played netball um, interestingly there was no girls playing rugby or soccer in my at my school and actually I think we only played rugby and netball and the boys played rugby and the girls played netball mm. um, but everything that we did was around you know the fields and running around outside and and that we played sports. Spend a lot of time playing tennis. Um, I think in my latter years we played um, touch. You know, as a teenager, and uh, my saving grace was when I found mountain biking as oh, a cool. um, as a in my lady teen years. When I was probably about sixteen, and um, I found I got into bike. I can't remember how I got into it, but I started biking, and I was like, "Oh, this is my sport. I really love it." I felt too old to be kind of getting any good, um, which was silly because I probably could have <laughs> yeah, been. yeah. And, um, but I really got into it in a big way and did a lot of amateur mountain biking events, which um, you know is my absolute favorite place, and you'll find me there. After the rugby Are you, world you're cup, you're still doing it. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. yeah. my go-to. Oh, cool. Um, but you know, I think I, obviously from a rugby point of view, touch rugby playing that from being a teenager, but only socially. Uh, but I think the one thing for me from a sport perspective was growing up in Bombay, We os- our life oscillated around the Bombay Rugby Club. It's in the middle of the hill, It's probably 30 seconds from my house. Um, and all of our community life was kind of in and around the rugby club. Um, you know, the family meals on a Friday, uh, you know, going down to watch the, the senior teams play, all mm-hmm. um, the kids rugby. And um, so, and I think that my love for it is really that how it's the heart of the community. And I really felt that in the COVID, after the first COVID lockdowns, with my own three children and going back to our Waiheke Island rugby club the first day out of lockdown that we got to go back to training and I remember standing there thinking oh my goodness things feel normal again because yeah. here are all my great friends we're all running running the drills running the club running the you know whatever needed to happen at the rugby club and I was like this is and this is why sport's so integral to our communities because um, it's the fa- social fabric where things are normal and, and it's healthy and uh, I was like that really to me and you know you saw all that massive investment by the government into sport Um, just as part of the COVID recovery. And I thought it couldn't have been spent better because actually it is sports and communities that really help keep people together and thrive. And when, you know, with mental health issues and those sorts of things, the benefit of sport being active, but being connected um, and the people that care about you, the best people are in sport. So um, I think that's probably my kind of, longer love of it.
0: Yeah, it's funny isn't it because I guess for people like us we are in sport every day and we do and we love it and we see the huge benefits it has. and yes we see it at the high performance end too which has its great moments, has its ups and downs but I guess for non-sport people it's sometimes hard to impress
1: why it is important that it gets investment and, and, and all of those kind of things. Yeah, absolutely yeah. and I, actually one of the I guess moments for me I started in I volunteered at Team New Zealand when I was 19 and um, for the first six months and then they offered me a full-time job but I think that was my first intro into professional sport Um, and one of the things that I learnt the most about that because I think the Team New Zealand environment's really unique in that you've got athletes, you've got designers, you've got shore crew, you've got, you know, admin staff, everybody all in there but you all had this one common goal so you're really united by, in that case, it was, you know, make the boat boat go faster Uh, and, you know, I saw how hard everybody worked and, you know, I was working hard but I wanted to do my bit for making the boat go faster and I was able to... I guess correlate what I was doing to how that made an impact to the rest of the team um, and that was um, at that time kind of being able to see those high performance athletes and their focus you know I remember that word focus 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 was always the thing that came out from Team New Zealand for me it was like well if you want to do something well you've just got to zone in to absolute the minuscule detail to make sure you get it right so there's no stuff ups and <laughs> um, And, you know, I think that that experience at Team New Zealand wasn't just, it was how you could perform off the field to support people on the field to be the best together. So um, that was a really unique experience.
0: Is that where it started, where you thought I could have a career in sport here? Was that the aim or was it just a bit of a whim or did you go at 19 uh, this is the trajectory but like you know maybe not of the athletic prowess to, to cut it right at the top of the
1: actual playing side <laughs> yeah I, I think it started at 16 because I went to the and I've said this quite a bit to people but you know in interviews but the Team New Zealand Welcome Home Parade and oh, yes, being as the a school red girl one. the red yeah, Sox, right. yeah, my socks up to my knees and I'd, I'd always wanted to be a vet because I loved animals always rode a horse and uh, but I had this moment when my horse was injured and I knew I couldn't fix it because it was so horrific I couldn't even look at it and I was like I can't be a vet all my oh. life I thought yeah. I would be so I thought like, I have to find something else and Team New Zealand went on to win the America's Cup and then the Welcome Home Parade and we're standing there and I was like I want to be part of this the energy this feeling like came over me I was like Are these moments for New Zealand bringing these events here like um, you know capturing the hearts and minds of Kiwis and that we can do stuff so well on the world stage and so that was the moment that I was like that's my and I just pretty much it was a sliding doors moment that, and then I was like I want to volunteer for Team New Zealand I want to go and do that and so I was th- 16 three years later I was volunteering at wow. Team New Zealand and then. I was... Going to go down to university at Dunedin, and I decided no, I'm not going to because I want to stay in Auckland for the Americas Cup. I want to be part of it, working wise. And so then all that happened, you know. And then from there, it was just which job do you do next, which helps you to contribute and be the best you could be. And I've always known I've got good leadership skills, so I always wanted to be the best leader I could be and use my skills to you know lead teams or um, lead change or lead something. So um, and sport was a great vehicle for that.
0: How do you did you did you were aware of those leadership skills or how did you develop them? Because I guess to be at 16, 17,
1: 18 and have that realisation is quite sort of, quite self aware Yeah, I, I think I, I was also I lost quite a lot of weight so I was in high school and, and that was a massive, um, another sliding doors moment for me I guess when I was 3rd and 4th form I put on a lot of weight and then I became conscious of it at a point in time and then I started running and I never stopped running, I just ran and ran and ran so by the time I was 7th form I was doing half marathons and I was really super fit and you know my brain was really focused and I was doing events all the time uh, and I think at that moment I was like you know sport helps you create that change and it also Perhaps you make decisions for for good where you could also make decisions Mm. for bad. You know, I think so sometimes when people don't um, have the, don't know how to, when things go, when the tough going gets tough for me, I make the the choice to go the right way where other people don't have the skills to make that decision. They'll choose to go a bad way, which is really hard. But I think sport gives you the tools and being fit and healthy to make the choice to go the right way. Uh, so that was, um, I guess, something that I learned at that point in time around, you know, um, being physically fit and healthy, and having that experience, and wanting to wanting to not be overweight and yeah. in, in their that, in that way. So, um, how feeling good about yourself can correlate to feeling good in that other
0: other aspects of life too. Totally, yeah.
1: yeah. And actually, I think that now with my children who are really little, and I think that um, you know, well, not really little; they're getting older, but they go through challenges. And I'm like, sport is your best friend. You know, you need to always be fit and healthy. You need to always do exercise. And if you're having a bad day, go out for a run go out and play sport and they do because mm. um, I think if there's one tool whether you've got mental health issues or you've got um, you know my kids have got like learning dyslexia those sorts of things we get really frustrated you just need an outlet for burning it off and feeling good about yourself and sport certainly gives that and it's a self confidence um, and belief in yourself which um, comes from within as opposed to looking to it from, it from other people so I'm always like you know you need to be your own best self don't let other people judge you and um, you know how do you um, you know how do you don't don't judge yourself against other people either just be the best you
0: yeah, so from a, a volunteer at Team New Zealand that parlayed into a, a full time job. Where did you go on the major events? Because I mean, we could list your CV here. You've done a few.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I have actually. I probably can't remember them all because I've had three kids and my brain's like a um, a sieve. No, but I think uh, I went from Team New Zealand. I did two campaigns with them, a win and a loss. Which um, you know, I'm massive on key learning, so I learned heaps out of you know winning the Americas Cup and what they meant, and then losing it, which was devastating. Um, and you know. Know, all of the key learnings you get you go into your next decisions. I went and worked for the New Zealand Olympic Committee. I uh, managed the Winter Olympic Games team at Torino, um when I was 26, which I was really, really proud wow. of. I pulled together two youth games teams um, as part of, for the first time ever, for the New Zealand Olympic Committee. We did an amazingly cool theme song with Nisian Mystic where they rewrote their words for the kids, cool. uh, which was super cool. And then I just went on to do more things in America's Cup, the FIFA Under-20... Uh, Football World Cup. I was the comp- competition director for that. Um, gosh, I've, I'm losing track. Three yeah, rugby 2011,
0: World Cups. Twenty eleven. Team here.
1: Services Manager for Rugby World Cup uh, here in New Zealand, uh, and I think you know, highlight in rugby was definitely being a match commissioner at Twickenham in the 2015 Rugby wow. World Cup, and you know, um, being in charge of Twickenham for all of the pool stage matches uh, was a huge honour, and I worked directly for World Rugby um, for that in that role yeah and just seeing a stadium with you know eighty eighty thousand people in it for every game day. Uh, and, you know, walking out into that atmosphere was was surreal. And I think from a leadership perspective to be entrusted with such a venue and, and you know, working for someone like World Rugby in that context in, in England um, was a, a really incredible moment in time. So, But I think out of all of that, I worked on the Japan Rugby World Cup. Um, I led the team services team working from New Zealand. Uh, so I was travelling back and forth for that. Uh, amazing to work with the Japanese. Mm. What an incredibly special culture. And I just took so many beautiful memories from those people and, and real um, appreciation for cultural differences and how to make the most of people from different cultural aspects and working together and getting the best out of people. Uh, and then I, um, when this opportunity came up to be the tournament director for the Rugby World Cup, my number one um, thought process was, wow, if I could take all of my, you know, I followed the Black Ferns and that I knew about their win record and I knew about their five times world champion um, title on um, um, all offshore And I was like, "Wow! if if I could do one thing, which was to take all of my learnings in key sport and major international events for the last 20 years and give those, um, those Black Ferns and the legacy of the Black Jersey a Rugby World Cup, that they deserve here on home soil Um, that would be like a dream come true in terms of what we can do for women's sport and I hadn't spent any time working in women's sport before Uh, and gosh I've had an incredible like (laughs) realisations in this two years that I worked two and a half years in this job Um, but to be able to do that here now for these 12 participating teams give them an incredible Rugby World Cup experience it's a huge honour and a privilege We'll take
0: another quick break here with our guest on Trailblazers Michelle Hooper Tournament Director for Rugby World Cup just around the corner No, no, mm. we're good. No, we're all good. Oh. <clears throat> we bang on time. Well, I say that and Minaya has to edit it, so. <laughs> cool. <laughs> and we'll
1: start, Hope the microphone's all working right. Yeah, you? no, yeah, it yeah. sounds good. Gosh,
0: it sounds so nice. These really nice mics. Oh, yeah. It sounds really good. Considering we're both like... <coughs> <coughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, check, check. Yeah. <laughs> cool <coughs> you're listening to Trailblazers on ECNZ. I'm Ricky Swannell and my guest is Michelle Hooper who is uh, moments days away from seeing the first teams run out at Rugby World Cup 2021 we we're talking about I guess in a, a life in sporting events This was, at what point when you're in one event do you start thinking about what your next job is or do you not like I mean because in well eight weeks the
1: tournament's done and two months time once you wrap it all up you're kind of without a job again. <laughs> well a wonderful thing happened to me about ten years ago and I had my first child and I now have three so the really great thing about um, you know this role is that I always have a full time yeah, job true. as a mother of three children <laughs> and um, I'm always kind of neglecting them from a, a being there all the time perspective so I think by the end of this tournament I just can't wait to spend time with my yeah. children um, and I do think that um, in a way you know, people, I think women are a little bit lucky and when we take leave for our um, children I like to think about things always from a, I guess a glass half full perspective but you get to make these career choices every time you have a child you can have a little bit of maternity leave or um, which to be honest I've never actually had paid maternity <laughs> leave I've just never just had a job at the time that yeah. I've had a child so um, but you can make say well and I guess recalibrate what you want to do and make a decision about what you do next mm. uh, so I think you know men don't always get that opportunity or haven't in the, in the same way so I think that's one advantage of being a female yeah. and having kids Um <laughs> And I like to be really, really selective. So you know, I, I just take on what I want to do. And I'm fortunate to have a husband that you know has a good job too. So he he can work, and we can work it all out. So, um, but I like to do really, really meaningful things that I that I connect with, and um you know but, uh, that I have two feet in and and mm. doing really, really well. So I think I've been pretty fortunate with the roles that I have had.
0: Yeah, because it, it's, it's quite an appealing lifestyle, isn't it? Because you're effectively a, you know a, a gun for hire almost, and and as you say, being able to pick and choose those those ones that you want. What What is the appeal of um, working, I guess, the event circuit, for want of a better way of putting it?
1: Oh, my absolute love of the chase is just the vision and then bringing it to life like and I love the word gunfire that's awesome <laughs> yeah. but I think for me it's really about these visions you know and and that you all work so hard together to deliver something and and in all of the events I've ever done it's always just or not just just about that moment in time it's also about the future benefit like mm. I remember the 2011 Rugby World Cup talking to big stakeholder groups and saying to them look the legacy that we can leave from New Zealand by proving we can do this um, is outstanding and so don't just think about it as now but also think about what what you're doing for future future events and it certainly is held up you know that um, you know New Zealand has an amazing event infrastructure because people know how to stand it up really quickly and we all work together so well um, so I think the uh, yeah I, I just really like the um, you know what is the vision and then how do I just bring the team together to make that happen and I one thing I can't stand, I despise, is negative energy. I'm really about positive energy. I think that everything's just an issue to be resolved. So let's work it out and get on with it. And I think you get, I get stuck down in these niggly details. And I know you have to go through the motions with that stuff, but for me, it's always like, well, how do you get people back up quickly? You know, how do you keep the you know the gold the goldfish moment? Like, yeah. okay, that happened, we've learned from it, and let's move on. Um, that's really important for me, and I think especially with what we've had to do with the women's um, with women's rugby, because as I said, it we often have this I call it like a machine where all the cogs are sitting outside of the machine, and you've got to work out which way how you put them together um, before you can even get them turning in the same direction. Because before I started this job, there was no paid. No, there'd never been any paid women's rugby games in New Zealand. Yeah. Uh, and so that's standalone. So the first paid women's rugby game happened at the end of 2020 in November out at Waitakere and it was a, a test event for yep. Rugby World Cup. Uh, that was the first. There's been five since. So, um, you know, when you're trying to work out what's the audience for women's rugby and how are we going to fill the stadiums? You have to say, well, how do we put all the pieces together? And then how do we turn the, the dials all together? And then how do you maintain momentum? So then this machine's actually working and then, you know, putting out massive output um, which I can see by 30,000 people today you know in eight days to go it's working the machine's going awesome yeah, <laughs> yeah. well I bought
0: my four bought my, my four tickets yeah Although I think I'm otherwise engaged on match day with actually calling the matches, but yeah. <laughs> well, someone can have my tickets. <laughs> um, you, t- yeah. you talked about um, New Zealand as a as a major events host, and we often I, oh, look. I remember 2011 World Cup so fondly. And I thought that was when we really, as a as a country, we, we kind of nailed it. Like it was awesome. <laughs> Where do we go, and what have you learned about what we can do, and
1: I guess the scale that we can get to given the size of our country. Oh, I, New Zealand, anything's possible because it's actually about our people and mm-hmm. we have the best mindset ever. Kiwis are just awesome and I mean sometimes I have to slow my team down because we act on stuff too quickly <laughs> but our instinct is just, that's a problem we're going to do this, this and this and it's solved and it's gone away uh, and it, sometimes people just can't keep up with us because we just are problem solvers by, by our thing and we're also when we, we're something that we all believe in, we all get behind mm-hmm. it and drive it which is just the best quality Um, so, you know, I think that whatever New Zealand takes on, but but I would love to see us, like, and you know, I meant this in something I was speaking at the other day, but you know, we can also be hampered by that conservative view yes. and, and tall poppy syndrome and kind of what's been done before. I think we need to look at everything with new eyes, be interested and curious about um, the things that are around us and how we can look at um, the changes that are happening globally and what we can do to be part of that change and influence. Because for me, we're such a small country. We can make the biggest impact on the world really Easily, um, if we work together and you know really hone in on our strengths, and that can be from like financial, from you know from tech sector, from um, climate change. You know, there's no reason why we can't be the world leader because we just turn things around really quickly. We're the ultimate prototyping nation. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know. So I'd love to see in the future like that we work to better and to use what we do in major events, which is turn things around on a dime, um, and and influence change for good yeah. globally. Because I guess you'd have to
0: keep evolving your own thinking, right, and trying to do things differently, like the like the poi and and, and infusing um, the culture into this one, and and constantly having to evolve to the next thing and the next trend and what's happening globally as well. Yeah.
1: And actually, that's a really good point because for this rugby world cup, it's triple header match days, long yeah. days, but we've we like put a whole entertainment program around them. We've got um, you know, and we've our performances with the headline artists in stages, which are fixed in in the seating area. It's not on the field of play, um, and we've asked world rugby we've gone to them with all those ideas and said will you sign all this off and let us do it so we're taking them on this journey of piloting stuff with New Zealand but because you've got that really strong trust and confidence between the two organisations New Zealand rugby and world rugby um, they're they're prepared to give us a shot, you know, at trialling these things. So there's there's a lot in that and I think that's the other part of being New Zealanders, is maintaining trust and confidence with international people offshore. Um, and if we do that really well, then we will be able to prototype things and, and bring things to the world which potentially other countries can't do because they just do not think as quickly and as reactively and proactively as New mm. Zealanders do. Mm. And you mentioned before about working together and how well there's a
0: real network of pretty incredible women working largely behind the scenes in sport, but we've had Andrea and nelson on the show katie Sadlier, Kieran smith we get all the big hitters here on trailblazers <laughs> how important though is that work and that network um and, and even the names we might not necessarily know publicly
1: oh unbelievably important and i think that's the other part too and and main thing my big breakthrough in this event was around the word misogyny and like the whole i didn't even know what that meant i had to look it up because i heard it so many times mentioned around women's sports so when i came into this job i had to listen to a podcast about what it meant and i was like unconscious bias like wow oh my goodness and then I became very aware of all of the frameworks that have uh, influenced our thought and my thought as a as a person um growing up and I think that was a massive another sliding doors moment you know wow if I've programmed by these ideals which have just always been there and and that we don't get challenged to challenge our thinking ever you know unless you have these moments so I think what you're talking about by this network of really influential women and really strong people it's about um, you know what is the, um, the and they are and even like a, you know waiting for, for men to take the lead on things we don't have to wait for men to take the lead we all as individuals take the lead on what we think is important so it's almost like I spoke to room full of women last week uh, rooms full of people at the hospitality lounge at Eden Park last week full of people there to watch the rugby and it's often men with their partners yes and I was talking about this moment in time to sell out Eden Park for women's sport. And the cheers were coming from the partners. And I was like, how many of those partners are going away to buy the tickets? Yeah, I, I, I would challenge possibly not many. Probably they wait for the guys to buy the tickets. But that's challenging This, this the the um, programming is like you can buy the tickets if you believe in it you go and do it because <laughs> yeah. do, do we still have a bit of a, um, a there's still a lot of good talk around but maybe not
0: people necessarily putting their money where their mouth is and buying tickets or buying a magazine with Portia Woodman
1: on the cover or buying a book with Ruby Tilly and all of those kind of things you know, I, I think so yeah. and I think it's like, as people, it's like people need permission or they yes. need to be shown, shown the way and it's like how do we fast track that process so that people don't feel like they need permission, or that they feel like they've got the um uh, the the what they need just to make that call and decision themselves. But so much of that is inherently ingrained in us that we don't even know it's just programmed into us. So when we talk about you know changing the demographics of the boardroom table or or the staff, um you know in, within a business or the voices that we're hearing, um it's really important because that's when you start to get the change which replicates you know the groups that we're representing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, there's so much of that goal and what we're delivering with Rugby World Cup 2021. I'm so excited about what we're bringing to people because I think we've challenged so many of those norms and um, we're just putting on this fabulous party um, that everyone's invited to come and join, celebrate uh, You know, the most amazing women's rugby players on the world stage but also have a great uh, um, time together and enjoy a showcase of entertainment. The family reunion is coming, Rugby World Cup
0: 2021, just about here. One more quick break here on SCNZ and we, be, we'll, we, we will be back with more with Michelle Hooper in just a moment. We've been chatting today on Trailblazers, the return of Trailblazers after a hiatus uh, with Michelle Hooper, who is the Tournament Director for Rugby World Cup 2021. And yes, obviously it is 2022, a year delay, (laughs) of course. But Michelle, when you started, uh, when New Zealand was awarded the rights, um, the remit was supercharge the women's game globally. What did that actually mean? And what does that mean to you? And what are we going to see
1: in that, or how that is fulfilled? Well, Ricky this is and in... in um, credit to the name of your show, Trailblazers. Um, you know this. The, we, I can't. I can't take the credit, but we'll roll with it. <laughs> well, women's rugby in this country, we are standing on the shoulder of giants. You know, we have uh, since you know, the rugby world cup uh, officially, which has now been recognised officially. It was 1991, the first women's rugby world cup. 1994, both of those world cups hadn't been recognised, and they're now engraved on the trophy in the last month. That's happened. Um, so it's been around for a long time, but the, the women's rugby itself has been completely amateur and, and it's often been paid for by the women directly themselves. So that has changed in the later iterations of the event. Um, but when you see what we are doing here, when you think in 2017, it was delivered at a university campus. And here in 2022, we we're at Eden Park, thought, you know, arguably the greatest rugby stadium in the entire world. We we'll can <laughs> say that because we're yeah, um, totally. And then, you know, Northland Event Centre in Whangarei, many international test matches. Waitakere Stadium, which is the model that World Rugby want, the 5,000 seed stadium. Um, you know, we are doing everything to supercharge the women's game. And what we want to do is just. You know we want people to pay to come because you know paid attendance at women's sport also is, is a new thing. Um, and we, then we also want to show because what happens with women's sport is because it's not in prime time slots, people don't watch it. It's not that they don't want to because there's massive demand, there's just a lack of supply. So, once we show that there's an appetite for it, and I guarantee the people at Eden Park that come and watch those games on the 8th of October are going to see a spectacle of rugby that they didn't know about if they haven't already tuned in to watch rugby, and they're going to fall in love with the product, which is women's rugby. Because I know when I watch it I'm like so drawn to every game and the results so um you know it's it's about that change of mindset by getting people in the door so 8th of October is about getting people in the door come and look at women's rugby and then it will sell itself because it's so compelling most gorgeous dynamic players you know high energy just physicality um you know it's just there's so much great things to watch but not only that there's you know because it's a triple header match days or double header match days we've got a whole festival entertainment program Maori um, Pacific culture wrapped around every game day and we've got headline artists so today we've just gone out and announced Lady Six at oh, cool. uh, Northland Event Centre at Whangarei on the 9th of October and we've got obviously Rita Aura opening at the um, opening match day we've got Sh- Shapeshifter for the semi-finals and we've got Benny for the finals so a loaded um, program of you know great entertainers as well as the biggest spectacle of women's rugby in the world
0: Rita Aura how did that happen <laughs> Well, I mean, obviously we know know her partner, I don't think they've even married, is Taika Waititi and he has a very close connection with someone on the New Zealand rugby board Um, but how on earth do you get Rita Ora
1: over the line, come and sing in our rugby tournament? (laughs) Uh, It was a lot of of, uh, moving and shaking going on to secure that. I think we've been looking for a long time for a headline artist and we've gone out to very many people so people don't just think it's just not one. Um, But I think the stars aligned with Rita and there's obviously the personal connection that she has a massive passion for women's women's movement and, and you know advancing the rights of females and um and she just loves New Zealand, clearly with her relationship with Taika Waititi. So she was really on board when she got the opportunity. Um and you know, I had so lucky a few weeks ago I had the chance to meet her for lunch and wow, I was just blown away her you know, she's young, but she's got this incredible she's a great leader in her own right. And when you understand the machine behind an artist in terms of all of the people that you deal with, the shows that they have to put on, it's incredible business, you know, big yeah, show business, yeah. like headline artists. Um, um, so I think we're incredibly lucky to get her but it is a little bit of Kiwi um, kiwi magic that happened to make sure that it did happen. It's a long way to come to New Zealand for a one-off show so um, it's, you know we're very lucky to have such a superstar.
0: I always say to people about New Zealanders if you don't know like you talk globally about six degrees of separation for New Zealanders it's about two yeah, <laughs> so yeah. you'll always find somebody that knows
1: somebody, someone's well, cousin. No <laughs> jokes, we did talk about that being the marketing campaign for a while but it's landed on family reunion.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, the, Again, and this I know this wasn't your decision, this was made during the bid time to only have games in Auckland and, and Northland and I know that is, seems to now people have suddenly realised and it's causing consternation. Can I guess you explain the, the thinking behind it and what it does mean for others in other parts of the country?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, and, you know, there's a question I get asked the most by the media yeah. too. And, uh, you know, I wasn't involved with the bid stage so I always put that out there clearly. But I think what I can say is that, you know, the bid stage... It was a very different model back then to what it is even now the wonderful thing is women's sports riding this massive wave and it's on a massive growth um, trajectory mm. you know they just had ninety three thousand uh, for that um, football match well, in, in Europe which was the biggest sellout for that venue ever um, for the lionesses victory uh, which was incredible you know rugby we're on our own journey we've got different targets to meet but this is the, the popularity of women's sport is picking up which is exactly what we want to see um, so, you know, plus we were delayed by 13 months. So <laughs> I think the the model back then was how do we take what we've got in terms of money and um, invest it to, to supercharge as best we can, um, which also involved like not having overly complicated logistics like flights and, and everything else. In retrospect, I think, you know, taking it to the South Island or, or other venues more sp- would be great. But there was moments for me as a tournament director when I, with all the different COVID restrictions oh in God. every single city which cricket went through. I was like, wow, thank goodness we've only got a small footprint. Yeah. But I think in future events, definitely the model of taking it around the country more would absolutely be the way to go. And, and let's hope that we do an outstanding job with delivering this Women's Rugby World Cup and it comes back here again and we can take it the length and breadth of the country. Mm. Um, but I would just say don't get burnt by the fact it's not on the South Island. The tickets are incredibly reasonable. We want you all to fly up, um, you know, come up for holidays stay with family don't miss it because it's not in your neck of the woods if yeah. you can get here please do because it's going to be a, um, a moment in time you don't want to miss yeah
0: the, the, the lionesses and the Euro comparison is coming a lot and I, I was in the UK through all of that and saw it, it how incredible it was I don't feel like it's quite the right comparison though because no. football is a whole different scale and it's really hard to try and impress that upon people is
1: that fair? I totally yeah. agree. No, no, And that's why I often say, you know, rugby's on its own journey because it's a different beast. And the numbers are, uh, globally numbers are completely not comparable yeah. in terms of football following to rugby following. Um, but one thing I love to say is that rugby is our national sport. You know, it is the sport that everybody gets behind. It's, uh, you know, it um, decides the um, the feeling of the nation. Uh, and the lovely thing is, we've got such stars of the game in the women's game and uh, they set a different energy, you yeah. know. So it's like just being out, come out and celebrate them. And I hope we can sweep the country um, with. With black for um, the black friends as they go on to hopefully try and defend a sixth rugby world cup title here on home soil the first time ever in front of family and friends um, where we can you know honour and recognise the legacy that they have left for this country and that they go on to defend every time they play their games.
0: How amazing have they been like I see through the the social media and all the stuff like they are taking so much on in terms of promoting this tournament as well as obviously trying to win it.
1: Yeah yeah (laughs) I know and I think it's it's interesting because I think that and as I've heard from them before too, it actually gives them energy. Yeah. And I believe that as well. You know, when you it, it, taking it in and then making it special, but it gives them energy to put out, um, which is which is really special. Mm. So, but we won't. We'd hope they don't put out too yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. What keeps you up at night? This this close out, other than my poor patrollers. Yeah, other than your Poi patrol, <laughs>
1: my children. Yeah, and your kids. Yeah, is yeah. there Anything that uh, that that a week or so out that makes you go, oh god. We've had such a focus on this opening match day because yeah. we know that that's the first like marketing point for the tournament when, you know, everyone's judged. And uh, to be at 30,000 eight days out, you know, my biggest worries are, um, are laid in terms of that because, you know, that as long as we can be on the right side of the numbers and we have a great crowd there, um, you know, we're going to be represented really well on the international stage uh, from a visibility point of view. Um yeah and I'd just say I just want to let's try again like we, we're we all about records so we've got a semi-final in Park we've got um, you know three, ma- four match days up at Whangarei quarter finals in Whangarei I think we're 98% sold against our revenue targets for awesome. the um, Whangarei games already because of the Black Ferns presence up there so if you want to go and see the team in Whangarei make sure you buy your tickets yeah. because yeah. They, yeah, yeah, they could sell out um, and yeah I, I, my concerns is just that we don't want an empty seat because I don't want a single New Zealander to miss out not for $5 for a child's ticket or as little as $10 for an adult in, in Northland and as little as um, $20 at Eden Park. Don't miss out.
0: Yeah. What, on the 13th of November, is that the day after the final? Yes. Yes, I have got that right in my diary, <laughs> thank goodness. Got, got that. On the 13th of November, when you sit down and have a glass of wine afterwards, what will success look like for you and the team um, and everyone involved?
1: Ah. <sighs> I think we want to be over 127,000 people having experienced rugby World Cup in the stadiums. That's our that's our target. Uh, I think 12 incredibly happy teams that have had an amazing rugby World Cup experience. Uh, there's one last thing but because I'm impartial I won't say that so. I'll say
0: uh, the Black Ferns <laughs> lifting the trophy Ruahe Demanton and Kennedy Simon holding the trophy together I can say that for you yeah <laughs> well Michelle to you and the team all the best for what's coming up over uh, the next uh, eight weeks or so we cannot wait and congratulations on all the work you've done so far try to get some rest if possible um, but enjoy every moment thank you so much for being on Trailblazers oh thank you Ricky, and thank you for being one of our champions for women's yeah. sport too thank you thanks <laughs>